Thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 152, Conduct Unbecoming an Officer. Last time, as the Wehrmacht and the SS troops were closing in on the beaten Allied troops in northern France and Belgium, Hitler ordered that all troops stop on May 24th. The reasons why vary. Hitler still wanted peace with Britain, and slaughtering the last of their men on the continent would not win him a dialogue. Or that der Fuhrer believed Goering when he said he could wipe out the retreating enemy forces, thus saving his men and equipment for a war against Russia that Hitler wanted to start that same year. Either way, the two-day delay gave the Allies what they needed to set up the miracle that the evacuation at Dunkirk has been labeled. But on May 26th, in the afternoon, Germany's leader released his forces once again. They would surge and finish off the enemy troops, commencing the next morning. So, starting with the SSV division, it was given orders under General Paul Hosser to cross the canal and take the Nieppe forest from the British troops currently holding it. As the forest was due southeast from Dunkirk, to possess it would go a long way to reaching the coast. However, Hasser would be without the Deutschland Regiment, as it was ordered to help the 3rd Panzer Division in attacking St. Venet and Merville further to the west. Still, Hasser and his began their attack on the morning of the 27th. The Kampfgruppe of the Der Führer Regiment, on the left flank, had the fortune of hitting the British in relatively open territory, whereas the Kampfgruppe of the Germania Regiment, on the right, had to battle the forest and the British. And as it was militarily imprudent for the left flank to advance too far ahead of the struggling right flank, by the end of the day only a few miles had been covered. The British still controlled the northern half of the Nieppe Forest, with the SSV Division controlling the southern half. Meanwhile, the Deutschland Regiment, backed by the tanks of the 3rd Panzer Division, fared better. First, the British opposing the Deutschland were forced back across their part of the Lys Canal. Then, though it took until evening, the waterway, which was rather narrow here, was crossed at several points by the Germans. It looked as if by that late evening, maybe that night, or first thing in the morning, could see the end of the resistance before them. But as the Germans were considering their options, they were soon hit by wave after wave of British and French tanks. As they were Hitler's troops, and thus well-equipped, the Germans had the means to hold off the Allied armor. And now unencumbered by any further Allied offensive, the Deutschland reached the edge of Merville by sunset. Not wanting to give up their hard-won momentum, the men of Deutschland, without the 3rd Panzer's tanks, it would be robustly remembered later by Himmler, kept moving and managed to push the surprised British out of the town that very night. Further down the canal to the south, the Totenkopf had also prepared to make big things happen on the 27th, after they found out late on the 26th that they would be once again allowen to advance. Obergruppführer Theodor Eck 
snuck men across the La Basse Canal that very night of the 26th, and he had some of his men prepare pontoon bridges as well. The 27th, indeed, would see a surge of SS personnel. The idea was for the Toltenkopf to cross over, defeat all before them, then head north and link up with the Deutschland. Thus reinforced, all would head north to finish off the Allies along the coast. But, countering this, the British had their own plans. The units facing the Totenkopf were told to keep control of the waterway for as long as they could, only then to retreat slowly to link up with their comrades at the Lys Canal to the north. Thus reinforced, they would be able to keep retreating in an orderly fashion all the while, keeping the attackers at bay. Before the sun rose on May 27th, the Totenkopf using their waiting pontoons, began to cross over, which, as they were about to find out, was only half the battle. By now, though regularly losing ground to the Germans, the British troops before the Totenkopf had learned how to balance their infantry and artillery, to the point that mutual support was relatively optimal, besides which they were highly motivated to hold the line which would allow an orderly retreat to the waiting ships at Dunkirk. So the SS men made it across, but were unable to go much beyond that. The more they tried, shouted at by Eck, the more men they lost. The Totenkopf Division's 2nd Infantry Regiment, led by Stendata Führer Berton, became the victim of another British, though classic, tactic. Thinking bravado and numbers would break the British line, Bertling and his men made a dash for the enemy troops in front of them, but found themselves caught in a crossfire. There was no object that was safe to hide behind. This was bad enough, but then the radio link between the 2nd Infantry and headquarters was lost. This left Bertling watching his men fall, and Eck thinking the regiment was about to be wiped out. The 27th only got worse for the Teltenkopf. Eck, in haste or panic, ordered the entire offensive to halt around noon, and then ordered the 3rd Infantry Regiment, led by Goats, to come back and save the 2nd Regiment. This gave the British a respite they did not expect. Eck's decision to halt the entire attack for the sake of one regiment though he did not know its true condition, only transpired because his chief operational officer, Montigny, owning a much calmer head, had collapsed with a hemorrhaging stomach ulcer. Further, Goats, who was supposed to be saving the 2nd Regiment, instead pulled out one of his battalions before sending the rest on their rescue mission, and then personally led this battalion at the British, thinking he was about to catch them off guard. His ruse worked. The British before him were pushed back, but near the end of the fighting, one bullet from one rifle reached out and took Goetz's life. As for the 2nd Regiment, that was rescued, and the British were forced back here as well. What made the British orderly withdrawal possible, besides the confusion on the German side, was the sacrifice of 100 soldiers 
of the 2nd Norfolk Regiment. They stayed back and distracted the Germans as long as they could, which meant until they ran out of bullets. Only at that point did the last defenders, located at La Paradis, surrender to the SS. More specifically, the 14th Company of the 2nd Totenkopf Infantry Regiment that had previously been caught in the British crossfire. Under the command of Obersturmfuhrer Fritz Kohlin, the British troops were beaten with rifle butts and then lined up against the farmhouse that they had been fighting from. Without any warning, two tripod-mounted machine guns started firing on the Norfolk men. When the guns fell silent, Colin told his men to make sure that all the enemy troops were dead. This was to be done with the bayonet or pistol shots to the head. Not that it serves as an excuse, but the Totenkopf had suffered just under 700 casualties that day, dead, wounded, or missing. The 27th had been an intense day for the SS, and their officers were teaching their men how to deal with such days. The mass execution and the individual kills of the survivors took just over an hour. Then Colin ordered the 14th Company to head north, as the rest of the division was making its way to the Lys Canal. And yet, two of the British soldiers somehow survived this ordeal and were found by local French civilians, who tended to their wounds as best they could. Then, a unit from the regular German army came by and took control of the men. Their medical care improved dramatically. The German officer in charge knew he had something of value here, and he was right. The two men survived the war and testified against Colin, who was found guilty and hanged until dead. It will come as no surprise that the various SS units, when they moved out, proceeded more cautiously this time, and it would be the Totenkopf that would suffer again as they took a turn at a portion of the British line. In truth, they had not yet recovered from the exertions of the 27th, while the British, again, were motivated to hold them back. General Hopner was about up to his limit in dealing with, in his opinion, the privileged, overpowered, but lackluster SS units, when he demanded that they attack again the next day. Fortunately for those SS men and Hauser, the British pulled out late on the 28th. As bad as it had been for the SSV and the Totenkopf divisions, they had helped push the Allies back, at their own pace, of course. But besides the mass killings, the SS were more or less getting the job done. The same could not be said for the Liebstandarte, further north, along the canal lines. Just like the other two SS divisions, the Liebstandarte was preparing to move out, again on the 27th. Yet when they began to move they didn't get very far, very fast. The British and French were just as motivated here as their comrades in the South. Obergruppenführer Sepp Dietrich, with the Liebstandarte, wasn't shy, and he immediately called for supporting panzers from the army. 
But even with this support, his troops could not reach their objective, the town of Wormhout, about 10 miles southeast of Dunkirk. The next day, the 28th, the attack was resumed, as was the stiff resistance of the defenders. Losing his patience, or rather worried that his men in command would be criticized by the army, Dietrich and his adjutant drove to the front to motivate their men. As for what happened to the two ranking officers, that was gleefully covered in a report by General Guderian. Paraphrasing, he said, Dietrich and his aide were fired at by a lone holdout of British troops ensconced in a house. Their bullets set the Germans' car ablaze, so the two men jumped out and dove for a nearby ditch. As the fire continued and petrol was leaking towards the men, Dietrich and his aide lathered mud all over their faces and hands for protection from the fire. Fortunately, a German truck with a wireless radio was nearby and called in for support from the 3rd Panzer Regiment. The British here were neutralized, and Dietrich and company were able to walk to headquarters, covered in mud. Guderian was unable not to make comments about his guest's appearance. Fortunately for Dietrich and his men of the Liebstandata, they were able to press on towards Wormhout, reaching it just after midday. But then came the real fighting as the British were ordered to stay put and hold back the Germans, thus giving their comrades more time to escape to the north. As both sides were determined, this resulted in intense, anxious house-to-house fighting. The SS men gained ground throughout the day, taking casualties, but also capturing enemy troops as they went. The fighting for Wormhout was over by 10 p.m. Because of how the battle for the city had unfolded, the Germans now had just under 100 prisoners, but Liebstandata's 2nd Battalion had suffered grievous deaths. Its commander, Wilhelm Monk, decided it was time for payback. As most of the prisoners were of the 2nd Royal Warwickshire Regiment, their captain, James Lynn Allen, spoke up for his men. First, the POWs were herded into a barn, but even then, the men of the 2nd Battalion jabbed at them with their bayonets. Captain Lynn Allen shouted a protest, but the Germans just jeered back and then threw in a few grenades, killing and wounding many of the men inside. The Germans then approached the barn door and took out five prisoners. They were led away, shots, could be heard. The POWs did not come back. Then another five were taken away. Shots were heard, but these men, too, did not return to the barn. The Germans came back to collect another group, but this time none of the British troops would leave the barn. In response, the Germans lined up on one side of the barn and opened fire. Their bullets tore into the building until someone called out, cease fire. It was assumed that no one inside was still alive. Yet, amazingly, 15 men out of the 95 had somehow 
persevered, and like before, would be picked up and tended to by the medics of the regular German army. With Wormhald secured, the Liebstandante moved north, yet even more cautiously than before, and they were doing so without armor. With the British locked up at Dunkirk, Berlin decided it was time to go after Paris. Hence, Army Group A's armor was turned south. This left those enemy troops around the beach, the British and those protecting them, the French, in the hands of the infantry of Army Group B. Men from the De Fuhrer, when they reached the town of Castle, itself on some heights, were able to see British troops moving towards the beaches, with the French troops covering them. Still, the SS troops advanced, but were unable to break through the French defensive lines, at least in time enough to stop the great exodus. When the Germans finally entered Dunkirk, some 338,000 Allied troops, of which 110,000 were French, were now either in or on their way to England. By now, the various SS units had developed several characteristics. Courage and determination, to be sure, but there was also cruelty, which was demonstrated and encouraged by their officers. The fighting in the field was to prove themselves to Hitler and the Wehrmacht. The mass killings, however, was necessitated by the culture war, which Himmler and his kind were determined to win. As for Hauptsturmfuhrer Wilhelm Monk, the British held an inquiry about the mass killings of the 2nd Royal Warwickshire Regiment after the war. But at the moment, Monk had his own troubles, as he was then a POW of Soviet Russia. Still, he was released in 1955. But by then, the appropriate authorities did not believe they had enough evidence to find Monk guilty, so did not pursue the case. 